Welcome to the Alpha Dude Podcast with Michael Pulser. What would it be like if you knew that you were unstoppable and you could live life on your terms? Better yet, how good would it feel knowing that on your deathbed, you had fulfilled all your potential and more? Life on Earth has a beginning and an end. It's what you do in the middle that counts. Let's look at how to make that part even better. Even in this age of social distancing, where we're causing social isolation, there is still social pressure. And that will be the focus of this episode. And surely, as the social distancing starts to clear away, the social pressure element will start to become more and more evident like it used to. So what is social pressure? We've all experienced it before in social settings. Let's look at exactly where it comes from. It's from the two principles of social and pressure. Social, as defined, comes from other people's and situations. The experience of interacting with other people brings its own issues. And then you have pressures. Pressures is the way that other people want you to do something that you may not want to do. So all in all, with social pressure, if you have a very strong frame, then you're going to be okay. You will be able to survive any form of social pressure. So the whole issue is having control of the dominant frame. The big question is, how do we do that? In NLP, when we talk about frames, we describe boundaries around events or experiences. It's a way that filters out the perception of our world based on our internal representation. And often, this is outside of our conscious control. If we can take conscious control, then suddenly we become masters of our destiny. And there are four primary ways which NLP uses in examining frames. That is the ecology frame. And that's basically looking at the interactions and making win-win situations. The as-if frames. And this one is extremely powerful. This is when you get yourself into the state that you need to get that dominant frame. You get the backtrack frame, which is basically looking at how things can be brought back on track. So in meetings or situations, you try and bring it back. The evidence frame, and we'll talk about this soon, but essentially it's finding enough evidence to support the beliefs. And then the contrast frames. And this is looking at about how the different situations can be affected or how you could have a different outcome. So let's look at these as it applies to getting the dominant frame. In order to get the dominant frame, it doesn't mean that you're the more dominant and aggressive person. It just means that your view of reality is something that you're so sure of that no one can take it away from you. You're not soft and weak, you're strong. And from this standpoint, anything cannot stand in your way. So to develop this, firstly, you have to get that objective view of reality. And that's kind of why this podcast is slightly different from some NLP and psychology podcast, which is very much based on subjectivism and experience. There is an objective reality. And once you tap into it and really understand the truth behind it, then you can support with true evidence that will be the strong foundations for your belief systems. And as I talked about before, just look at the past episodes where we looked at ontology and other things. The Red Pill episode is probably one of the better ones to describe this further. Number two is success 
breed success. As I always talk about metacognition, once you've had a positive experience, don't just say that was cool and forget about it. Put it away in your memory. Write it down if you need to. Make it so that you've got a catalog of these positive experiences. And slowly over time, you kind of have to be an idiot to say that, hey, I have achieved all of these amazing successes, yet I'm going to fail. It's quite obvious. If you can bring to mind hundreds of past successes, your chances of failure are going to go right down. Number three, respect your frame. Also respect other people's frames, but don't accept others' reality as your reality. It's simply their conscious projections. Their projections is not their it's not the true reality. It's just their experience. It's their perception. And in order to do this, it's simple. First of all, validate it. This is what I mean about not being aggressive. If somebody has a viewpoint of the world or a situation, you don't have to flat out tell them you're wrong and become extremely aggressive. Basically, you can just say, look, I acknowledge it. You can use motivational interviewing techniques like we've talked about in the past or whatever just to give it some sort of validity and then once you've done that if you have pure motives it shows up and people want to work with you and once you work towards on the same goal together it just becomes unstoppable to give a real world application of how this works I had an experience earlier this year where I was working with a guy and his world was truly falling apart I mean he was going through a marriage breakup and he was also going through a career destruction at the same time. It was a really terrible place for him. And the way that he saw the world, you just wouldn't want to be in that dark place. From this depth of despair, this awful place, everything that he looked at was just completely black and bleak. And so rather than say, just pull yourself out of it and don't be this way, that there's more out there and try and take him straight onto the path of moving forward, you respect the frame. You see where he is at the time. You're like, wow, that is intense and I'd probably feel the same way as well. You acknowledge that he's done really well to get through as far as he has. I mean, some people, maybe they might have committed suicide or done something crazy in that sort of situation. And then using the motivational interviewing techniques you slowly bring him around. You never actually take him directly to the place he needs to go because like I keep saying about that movie Inception, you have to make it so the idea comes from within. You bring him around slowly and you talk to him about the possibilities and potentiality of what would happen if you could make this small, tiny shift. And then building on that, you get another shift and slowly and slowly and so on. Now, without going through and dragging you through the whole case study, we had a fantastic outcome. And it was all predicated on the fact that we had to respect his belief first. And then once we did that, he had to basically join me at my frame. And from that frame, he was able to work through his situation. So that's a little bit off track for social pressures. How would that translate to social pressures? So let's say something about smoking. Perhaps you've got a friend who smokes and he wants you to smoke. Now, if you're weak, beta male, you're sad, then there's massive amounts of pressure. And if he is your role model or if he's someone that you really respect, then the pressure goes up and is elevated. And you can see who controls the frame in this situation. So the key 
is in working out the difference in who controls a frame and why. So generally the AAAA aspects of the AlphaDude system will help you to control the frame in any situation. That's why I keep coming back to it. The attitude, the aptitude, the altitude, the amplitude, these factors can all take you from wherever you are to wherever you need to be. And from that powerful standpoint, people suddenly start to respect you. And not only that, you start to develop confidence in yourself. And not only that, you develop the dominant frame within yourself so deeply that other people see it too, and they see that you have the dominant frame. And suddenly, social pressure, it just doesn't cause as much friction as it used to. But let's be honest, we can all develop further in this area, and it does take conscious application. So what I would advise is that if you are naturally extremely charismatic and you've got everything together, then probably just remember the fact that there are dominant frames, and if things go off, you get that cognitive dissonance that gives you a little poke, you look at what's happening in your situation, you examine the four A's in yourself, you look at the situation, you look at the frames, and then you make the minor adjustments. However, if you're like the, the majority of the population, you have to work on this. And it's the thing, like I said before, you build up those successes, you think about those successes, you have the metacognition, you have the cognitive dissonance that comes up, and when it comes up, you act and you make the changes. You spend time, perhaps daily initially, until it starts becoming solidified within yourself. You look at the four A's and you examine yourself. You look at how your body language is, how your thoughts are, how your voice is, how you're communicating to the world and to yourself, and if there is congruency and consistency. And only once you've done this on a regular basis, translated it to experience, and then got the feedback and catalogued it and then thought about it, you will have it truly at your fingertips. The thing is, though, it's kind of like eating all this psychology stuff. You can have the world's greatest meal, but you're going to be hungry tomorrow. So the same thing applies. There has to be some form of repetition. There has to be some form of revision in which you take on these techniques, these tools and principles, and you revisit them, that you relearn them, you reapply them, and examine how they're translating in your life. So generally what I'd advise is just giving it an intense period of focus, perhaps weeks, whatever you need to. And then once you've done that, slowly back it off until it's in your diary. At the end of the week, you just examine how things were and then make some adjustments and then stretch it out. Maybe you can make it a monthly thing. And in no time, maybe it'll be every six months or year. We don't know. See how you go. Just make sure that you give it the time that it needs. And this will be an absolute game changer. In other words, you may never feel exhausted from social pressure ever again. So as I said, if you can control your frame, you can tr control your destiny. And I've talked a lot about martial arts before and a guy reached out to me and he said that he is big into the martial arts and it turns out that he's quite successful not only in martial arts but in psychology coaching as well. So we brought him on today to share his story about martial arts and about his life. During his presentation, 
just observe the way that he speaks in his story. Examine the words that he says and how he communicates it. And you will get a taste of how somebody controls their frame. Samir is a great guy and a great communicator. And I'm sure you'll love his story. Here is Samir. Hey, everybody. My name is Samir Sharma. I'm 46 years old and I am a high performance mind body coach and I focus on helping people develop a path of self mastery. Uh, the tagline that I use is I help people reclaim their mind, their muscle and their mojo. In addition to that, I'm a martial artist. I am an athlete. I am also a personal trainer with a specialty in mobility. And I'm a visual artist. I paint and draw. Now, all of that sounds pretty disparate and kind of all over the place, but stick with me. I'm going to show you how all these seemingly different uh, skills and careers kind of culminated into who I am today. And I'm going to share with you my personal journey and my path of self-development and self-mastery through the arts that I've studied as a martial artist, I've studied two major arts. One is Aikido, and the other is Tai Chi. And I'm gonna share with you ultimately how being a martial artist led me to becoming a mind-body performance coach and how I've used the martial arts and my personal and business experiences to ultimately develop a methodology um, that I call self-mastery uh, to help people find their own master within themselves. So my personal development journey really began back in 1996. I had just graduated from college the year before and really didn't know what I wanted to do or kind of the direction I was going to head. But um, at that time, I got a job with a major uh, multinational consulting firm and they had sent me down to Florida for my first assignment for a first project. And uh, again, you know, not really having a clue, I just said, okay. Um, I can remember after being down in Florida for a few months, uh, one day my housemate and I, we decided to go outside and get uh, a bite to eat. We pulled into a strip mall and as we were waiting for our food to, to arrive, I saw across the street in the strip mall, there was what seemed to be some kind of a very interesting martial arts class going on. And I told my friend, I said, hey, while we're waiting, I'm just gonna walk across the street and watch this class. I'll be right back. Well, what I thought was only gonna be a few minutes or just a peek through the window, ended up being almost an hour. I walked inside, I sat down, and I was mesmerized. I saw people moving almost like a dance. It didn't really look like martial arts, not in the traditional sense that I grew up thinking, watching kung fu movies as a kid. Instead, I was seeing women half my size throwing men twice their size with no effort. It didn't look real. It looked like a magic trick or something. And all of a sudden, my mind just started racing. I said, how is this possible? So I was bewildered, I was confused, 
I was mesmerized and I was enchanted. And at the end of the class, I walked up to the sensei who was teaching it. And I said, I'd like to start. Where do I sign up? And that was the beginning of my martial arts journey with the first art that I started to learn, which is Aikido. For those of you who may not know, Aikido is a Japanese martial art. It was created by Morihai Ueshiba. And the word Aikido itself means the way of energetic harmony. The best way to describe it, if you don't know Aikido, uh, if you've ever seen a Steven Seagal movie or anything like that, um, the art that he is showing in his movies is Aikido. Uh, I wouldn't say he's the best example, but that's probably the, the closest reference I can give you. So Aikido is considered an internal art, uh, like Tai Chi and some other martial arts. What makes it internal is that rather than using physical strength, your goal is to use your opponent's energy and redirect that energy and transmute it into a technique that resolves conflict. So that's where I believe that way, the name, the way of energetic harmony is you are harmonizing with your opponent's energy uh, to create ultimately a resolution that manifests as a technique. So fast forward uh, over 20 years or so and having studied Aikido for so long, it turned from a physical martial arts practice to really a transformational practice. After I got my first black belt, um, I became less and less interested in the physical techniques of the art and more interested in the deeper philosophical and energetic principles that make the physical techniques possible. Along my path, as I was studying Aikido for many years, I was also interested in other arts. Uh, always liked to see what other arts were doing, what other people were training and practicing. And the Chinese art of Tai Chi, that always intrigued me. Um, you've probably been uh, introduced to Tai Chi. You maybe have seen uh, elderly people in the park moving very slowly and rhythmically and thinking, well, that's Tai Chi. And, you know, that was my initial uh, impression as well until I started to explore the art further and realized that it was a martial art, uh, like any kind of hard external style you would think as a traditional art like karate or judo or uh, jujitsu or something like that. And so with a stroke of luck, I ended up finding my Sifu, who I have now trained with for almost 10 years, um, actually just lived down the street from where I was living and started to train with him. And because I had well over 10 years of Aikido experience, I was already uh, a Nidan, a second degree black belt in Aikido when I started Tai Chi. Tai Chi came to me very easily because ultimately the principles were the same. Same principles of balance, harmony, softness, yielding, redirecting. Um, these were all expressed in Tai Chi. And for me, the two arts are more similar than different. Um, often we say that martial arts is one large family. They just express the same truths through different languages or through different physical languages. And so when I added Tai Chi 
to my repertoire, my skill set of, of physical training, it transformed not only my Aikido, but it also transformed my deeper understanding of the spiritual aspects of both of these arts and of how martial arts itself becomes a tool for personal transformation. The one thing I realized throughout my journey was no matter what I did in my life, in my career, um, the one common denominator was my training. No matter how bad my day went or what I did for a job, and through my years, I've had many different careers. The one thing I could rely on was my practice. If I had a rough day, if I was feeling excessively stressed out, I knew I could just pack my bag, go to the dojo, go to a class and train. And I know I would feel better. Or once I had started Tai Chi, if I needed to take a break or really to get more in tune with myself, I could just go outside to my local park, practice my forms. And I realized what a blessing this was and what a gift my arts has been for me. And I thought, these arts have really transformed me from the inside out, not just making, a, making me a better practitioner, but a better individual and has enabled me to tackle the challenges that I face throughout my life. And I started to wonder, could these arts could the principles and the lessons I've learned be conveyed and taught to other people who may not be interested in learning martial arts, but are still interested in developing themselves. And that's where I began my journey to developing a methodology of personal transformation, which ultimately led me to where I am today as a coach. as well as a personal trainer. From my experience of practicing for over 20 years, I found that there are four fundamental principles that can be applied to all aspects of your life to develop yourself. For me, these fundamental principles are the pillars of my methodology and what I use to not only develop myself, but also my clients that I coach. And from my experience, the four principles are really the bedrock upon which you can develop yourself, not only physically, but also mentally, spiritually, and to achieve whatever goals that you want in life. So for me, these four principles are number one, awareness. Number two, centeredness. Number three, non-resistance. And number four, alignment. So what do I mean by these four principles? So let me give you a brief explanation of each one. Awareness may seem a bit self-explanatory, but let me dive a little deeper. So awareness really begins with awareness of oneself. If you don't know yourself, then you can't possibly begin to understand your environment, or the people around you, or in the case of a martial arts situation, your opponent. So awareness starts with self-awareness, awareness of the self. This can start as being as simple as just being aware of how am I breathing? Am I breathing shallow? 
Am I breathing full? How is my posture? Am I hunched over? Or am I nice and upright and my structure is aligned? Where is my weight shifted? Am I off balance? Am, am I struggling to maintain my balance? Am I efforting more in my body than I should be? These are all just small kinesthetic cues that ultimately through reflection and practice will lead you to deeper understandings of yourself and of your psyche and your psychology. So something that my sensei often says is that your body expresses what your mind is thinking. So if I'm physically holding a lot of tension in the body, if my breathing is shallow, that usually is a great indicator that my thought process is one of tension, of possibly fear, of resistance. And so the body is a great tool, a feedback loop to tell you what is happening in the mind. And from there, you can begin to change how you think and perceive your environment. The second principle of centeredness is both physical as well as mental and emotional. So oftentimes, if you've practiced or ever been to a class um, in martial arts, you're, the teacher may say something like, be centered or find your centered. This is often also spoken in um, the realm of meditation when they say, you know, be centered in yourself. Well, what does that mean? For me, being centered is both centered within my body, meaning my locus of control, my attention, my focus is within me rather than being dependent on the outside world. An expression of being centered is your ability to respond versus react. Often when we're not centered, we are reacting to what's happening outside of us. And in that process, we often give away our power and our energy to the very thing we're reacting to. Wherever, once we're in a centered place, once we are within ourselves, we can then respond. And for me, the difference is the ability to choose. There is a gap between what happens and your subsequent response. And that, re that gap is choice. Centeredness allows you to create the space within yourself to develop that choice. Without it, you're simply reacting. To give you a very simple example, if you, for example, are reacting to someone's strike, right? It's a reflexive reaction. So someone tries to throw a punch to your face and your hand immediately goes up, right? That is a reflex. That is not a response in the purest sense. However, if you take the same attack, same punch to the face, and if you can see it for what is, maybe you choose not to raise your hand. Maybe you choose to slightly shift the weight and allow that punch to pass you. That choice doesn't happen unless you're from a place of centeredness. So centeredness is finding that still place within you from which you can look out and act upon rather than react to what's going on around you. The third principle of non-resistance is more than just the idea of not pushing back or not fighting. Rather, it's welcoming, it's allowing and embracing whatever is in front of you. It's through the process of allowing and welcoming do you have the ability to transform and redirect whatever force is put upon you. It could be a physical force, 
It could be in a mental or an emotional force, for example, uh, being in an argument with somebody or having to deal with a stressful situation. The more you push against something, the more you give it strength and the more you in the process become weaker. This has become really apparent to me in my practice of both Aikido and Tai Chi, where the more I push my partner, the more I get thrown. Because essentially I'm giving him my energy and I'm giving him my balance. And like the previous principle of centeredness, I'm not centered. I'm actually dependent upon my partner because I have given up so much of myself in order to elicit or get a result outside of me. In Tai Chi, this principle is expressed in the yin of yin and yang, the soft feminine yielding energy. Often in our Western culture, we tend to downplay or don't give as much credit to softness, yielding and allowing. We think that force, exerting force is the way to get things done. But from my experience, it isn't. It's the, it's the soft yielding feminine energy that really allows ultimately the masculine to really do whatever it needs to do, the strength. But without it, you're always in a place of tension and resistance. Something I often tell my clients is if you cannot accept it, you cannot change it. And for me, non-resistance really expresses that idea because if I'm constantly resisting what is in front of me, I'm giving it power and I'm giving it my strength and energy and keeping it there versus allowing it and giving back myself the ability to make it transform. The fourth principle of alignment is both physical alignment as well as mental and emotional alignment. Physically, obviously, if your body is misaligned, if your structure is skewed, then it's very hard to generate power, generate force, and do anything physically out there. You've probably noticed this yourself, is if you are compensating in your movements, then generating power becomes very challenging. And you have to end up working harder than you have to if your body was aligned, if you could allow force to transmit through your structure down into the ground versus having to generate what they call localized force, using your limbs or pushing against something. So physical alignment obviously is very important. And in martial arts, particularly uh, in Aikido and Tai Chi, the suspension of the head, the raising of the crown of the head, really is the primary alignment principle from which the rest of the body and the structure follow. On a mental and physical level, I see this principle of alignment manifest in terms of self-image and identity. If who we are today is not in alignment with the goal we want to achieve, then achieving that goal is going to be extremely difficult. And if we do get there through some incredible sheer force of will, we often won't be able to sustain the goal. And so uh, as a coach, I often emphasize that in order to achieve a goal, you must first determine the identity or the image of the person who already has that goal. So it's the difference between running to lose weight and being a runner. If you're trying to lose weight, let's say you're 20 pounds overweight, 
right? There's a reason why you are overweight in the sense that the person you are, your self-image of yourself is one that promotes being overweight in some way. Whereas someone who is a runner, losing weight is not really an issue. For them, their goal is probably, how do I shave a half a second off my mile? Or how do I prepare for this race? So from the sense of identity, from the sense of beingness, the goals naturally come out. They are a natural extension or a result of your beingness. So rather than efforting to achieve the goal, I always emphasize determine the beingness or the identity of the person who already has that goal and then start to assume the traits and characters and small tiny actions that that person would do to then achieve that goal. So if you are running to lose weight, then start to assume the small habits Maybe it's as simple as putting your shoes on. Over time, those small habits accumulate into an identity, an image, a persona. And from that identity, image, and persona, the results happen. You know, years ago when I started martial arts, if you would ask me what I did, I would say, well, I practice martial arts. I practice Aikido or I practice Tai Chi. Now, if you ask me, well, what do you do? I would say to you, I am a martial artist. Very different. One is an activity, the other is a state of being. And so as a martial artist, practicing, going to class, reflecting, meditating, all these things, they just happen for me. There's just something that I do. I never have to effort myself or will myself to do them. I think willpower is way overrated. Rather than using willpower, Use that sense of identity. Develop the sense of identity from which willpower is not necessary. Because willpower is very limited. It's like your muscle. Your muscles only have so much strength and energy until they give out. Willpower is like that. And oftentimes, <laughs> it's not nearly as strong as maybe your muscles may be. So these four principles are the foundation upon which that I have used to train myself through all these years and ultimately led me to develop a methodology to train my clients. Even as a personal trainer, my focus and specialty is mobility. And I find that these principles tie perfectly even with physically training people as a personal trainer and specifically with mobility. So for some of you wonder, well, isn't that the same as flexibility? Actually, it's not. From my experience and from what I have studied and learned, mobility differs from flexibility in that mobility is building strength and force production in the end ranges of motion. So if you've studied martial arts or if you've tried to become more flexible, you notice that if you are, for example, trying to do a split, a side split, you get to a certain point and then you feel that tension and that pain in your, in your muscles where your body doesn't want to go any further. Mobility is developing strength in that range of motion once you hit that limit so that basically you are telling the body, hey, I'm strong here. Please give me more access to the range of motion that's inherent in my body. So really mobility work is training the nervous system to allow access 
to the range of motion that is already inherent in, in your muscles. Some people think that mobility is about lengthening or stretching the muscle. And really, from my experience, mobility is more about training the nervous system than it is about the muscles themselves, because the muscles will only do what the nervous system tells it to do, how the nerves fire. So in terms of the four principles, for me, mobility is, again, another physical expression of being non-resistant and being aligned. So if I'm resisting the tension that's in my body, I'm just building more tension and programming the muscles to be tense. Whereas if I can allow myself to find that end range and relax there, over time, the body starts to get it, so to speak, and will give you, grant you access to greater and greater ranges of motion because you have essentially expanded your comfort zone. So they often say success is on the other side of your comfort zone. For me, physical mobility work is an expression of developing that comfort zone to a greater and greater degree. So as I become more mobile, I increase my ranges of motion, I increase my force production, and I increase what is possible for me to express physically through the body. And ultimately through years and years of practice, I realized that the body is an incredible tool to transform the mind. So something I often tell people is that if it's not in your body, then how do you embody something? So for me, as a practitioner and as a coach, the somatic experience, the physicality, the tactile experience of understanding these principles and really embodying them, feeling what is it like to not resist, feeling what is it like to absorb force and being able to transmute and redirect it is a much more powerful way of changing the mind and changing your beliefs and paradigms than simply intellectualizing or theorizing about something. So one of the benefits I have as a trainer and as a coach is to be able to share my experiences as a trainer, as an athlete, as a martial artist, to help people change the way they think. And if you can change the way someone thinks, you can change the way they move. And if you change the way they move, you can back, loop back and again, change the way they think. So it becomes a feedback loop. And all of a sudden, the identity, the persona of the person starts to change. And ultimately to me, this is the real benefit of physical practice, whether it's martial arts, whether it's lifting weights or whatever. Is it, who is it that you are becoming in this process? So I would encourage you all to look at your bodies, not just as some flesh and bone, but it's really a true physical expression of the internal state, the internal identity persona of the person you think you are. So if you want to achieve something, you must first de determine what is the identity? What is the persona of the person who already has this? And if you can start to imagine what that would be, then use the body as the tool to start developing the small actions, the small habits from which that identity will be created. It is a much more effective and, in my opinion, quicker way to achieving something than it is to try to fight against who you are today to achieve a goal that is not in alignment with 
the sense of self that you have. From that identity comes natural habits and actions which lead to their subsequent results. To get a result, change the identity, go to the source. And when you go there, see if you can use these four principles of awareness, centeredness, non-resistance and alignment to help cultivate a new self from which the results just happen. The application of these four principles in the development of the self is ultimately what I call self-mastery. And the thing to remember about self-mastery is that it's an endless process. There is no finish line and it's like peeling an onion. There's layers upon layers and layers. And the more you develop, the more you realize that there's even more to go. So you never are racing to an end goal. You are completely involved in the process of itself. There's no place to arrive because the path is endless. And because it's endless, growth is infinite. So with that, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to my story and my path and process. And I hope you give these principles a try. If you want to reach me, you can contact me through Facebook, as well as my website, which is www.samirsharma.com. That's S-A-M-E-E-R-S-H-A-R-M-A.com. And also through um, Instagram, which is Samir Sharma Official. So I hope you got something out of this, and I really enjoyed taking the time to share this with you. And like I said, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And remember, change the self to get to the result. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If so, rate it from the place you downloaded it. For any questions, send an email to michaelpulser at gmail.com.